This podcast is brought to you by the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Epidemic Cover-Up, which is available on Amazon at cfsbook.com. Americans are taking to the streets in anger. At bankers for ruining the economy. At CEOs for taking bailout money as bonuses. At the stock market for demolishing their retirement plans. Into this arena waltzes public enemy number one. Mr. Madoff, what do you say? Financial fraudster Bernard Madoff, who gives a name and a face to all that went wrong and a focus for everyone's anger. America thought the boom would last forever. For the last 25 years, we've had this enormous boom throughout the world. There's never been anything remotely like that in the history of, of finance. But in 2008, America found itself at a crossroads. The stock market slide continued today. Wall Street's worst week ever. Moscow fell Japan's Nikkei dropping 9%. How low will it go? When the stock market collapsed, people all across the country took a hit. I can see myself working for 10 or 15 years longer than I might have uh, originally thought I would. Outraged Americans watched as more than $2.4 trillion of their savings vanished in a few weeks. My money is gone. My 40K, what I plan to live off on, is not there. An infuriated nation began to wonder, were the underpinnings that held the American economy together just smoke and mirrors? To make matters worse, the downturn brought to light an unprecedented amount of fraud. When the tide goes out in the financial markets, you can see who was overexposed, who was cutting corners, who was operating fraudulently. The biggest fraud of all was Bernard Madoff, who stole some $65 billion perpetrating the largest Ponzi scheme in history. Mr. Madoff, what do you say? A nation up in arms found one focus for their fury. It's very hard for people to wrap their minds around the drop in this S&P 500 or the mortgage meltdown. He puts a face on what we've all been feeling the last few years. People who you know, had absolutely nothing to do with Bernie Madoff could look at this man and say, this is the human being who symbolizes the loss in my portfolio. He is someone people can focus their anger, their attention on, and it's going to be remembered as the Madoff era. That opening from the documentary called Bernie Madoff, The Scamming of America, was a moment in American history everyone can remember. Now, just about every citizen in America and the rest of the world knows what a Ponzi scheme is. What every citizen in America doesn't know is that he or she is a victim of a far bigger medical and scientific Ponzi scheme that, unbeknownst to them, has endangered their health for the last three decades. It threatens their health now, and it promises to be a threat to their immune systems and every other system in their bodies for the rest of their lives. This show is about that Ponzi scheme, which I refer to today as the Anthony Fauci HIV AIDS Ponzi scheme, or the Fauci Ponzi scheme for short. Here's Anthony Fauci describing his early involvement with the AIDS epidemic. In 1981, I was at the National Institutes of Health. I was a senior investigator and the head of a laboratory called the Laboratory of Immunoregulation, of which I still maintain that laboratory uh, 30 years later. Uh, what we were studying at the time before the appearance of the AIDS cases that we first saw then, was the interface between infectious diseases and the immune system, and particularly the regulation and dysregulation of the human immune system. I remember it very, very clearly because it was associated with some major decisions I made about changing the direction of my career. I was sitting in my office at the NIH Clinical Center, the research hospital where I had my laboratories, and um, what came on my desk in June of 1981 was the June 5th uh, edition of Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, the weekly uh, a summary that comes from the CDC. And it was a report 
of five otherwise healthy, interestingly and curiously, gay men who presented in Los Angeles with an unusual pneumonia called pneumocystis pneumonia, which is seen only in individuals who have a compromised body defenses or immune system. I had seen several patients with pneumocystis because as an infectious diseases clinician, I was not infrequently called to consult on patients from the Cancer Institute who were receiving chemotherapy and would occasionally get this bizarre type of pneumonia. I didn't make anything of the initial report because it just was curious, a little disturbing, wasn't quite sure what was going on. And then exactly one month later, on the 4th of July of 1981, another edition of MMWR landed on my desk as it does every week, and I read it. Uh, and now this was an additional 26 men, again, curiously, all gay men, all previously healthy, who presented now not only with pneumocystis pneumonia, but also with a strange cancer called Kaposi sarcoma and other infections. And it was at that point that I fully realized and knew, and I actually remember getting goose pimples about it because saying, oh my goodness, this is a new disease and it must be a new infection or a mutated form of another infection because it was well known at the time that gay men often got a variety of different infections, uh, bowel infections, hepatitis, uh, things like that. I didn't know what it was, but I made a decision then in the middle of the summer of 1981 that I was actually going to change the direction of my career and start bringing into the hospital and studying these unusual situations of gay men who had the strange disease. In fact, we used to call it then for a while gay-related immunodeficiency or GRID until it became clear that the disease went well beyond the gay community and involved essentially anyone who would practice risk behavior that would put them at risk. Before I get into the Anthony Fauci story, please note a couple of things about what Fauci said. First of all, as I noted in my book Yatra Genocide, Epidemics never have a second chance to make a first impression. As you can see, Fauci's first impression of the AIDS epidemic was as gay as a goose, so to speak. I believe that once scientists start thinking that way, it is almost impossible to get them to dial their thinking back, and Fauci is no exception. His gay obsession about behavioral risk would blind him to all the evidence that came in which challenged the HIV paradigm and that is why it basically turned into an HIV Ponzi scheme. The mistakes Fauci made about the nature of the AIDS epidemic had to be protected at all costs, the same way that Bernie Madoff had to protect his image as a successful businessman who could only achieve great things. With what could be called scientific cooked books, Fauci played many of the same games Madoff played with money. But many more people got hurt from Fauci's HIV Ponzi scheme than from Madoff's financial Ponzi scheme. Okay, here is the Anthony Fauci story. November 2, 1984 was an especially tragic day in the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic. That was the day Anthony Fauci became the director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. It was the day a thin-skinned, physically ultra-diminutive man with a legendary Napoleonic attitude, was positioned by destiny to become the de facto AIDS czar, and in some ways he also was the chronic fatigue syndrome czar. In the fog of culpability that constitutes what I often refer to as the HIV-AIDS Ponzi scheme, one thing is clear. The buck, on its way to the very top of the government, at least pauses at the desk of Anthony Fauci. In his book, Good Intentions, Bruce Nussbaum writes, Fauci looked as if he stepped out of a limousine. Trim and athletic, Fauci's tailored suits, cuffed-linked shirts, and aviator glasses set him apart from the rest of the scientists and administrators at the NIH. Fauci had risen quickly at NIH. According to Nussbaum, he began work at NIH in 1968 after his residency and, by 1977, he was Deputy Clinical Director of NIAID. Nussbaum describes Fauci as an aggressive administrator, not a details man, a big-picture kind of guy. 
Nussbaum wrote that Fauci saw AIDS as a dreadful disease and an opportunity for NIAID, his institution, to grow into a much bigger, more powerful institute. So AIDS was his very big chance. He wasn't known as a brilliant scientist, according to Nussbaum, and he had little background in managing a big bureaucracy, but he did have ambition and drive to spare. This lackluster scientist was about to find his true vocation, empire building. Unfortunately, the empire his extreme ambition would build was the HIV-AIDS Ponzi scheme. If the mantra during Watergate was follow the money, the mantra for uncovering the crimes of the HIV Ponzi scheme could be follow the empire building. And one of the morals of the story is that lackluster can have extreme consequences. According to Nussbaum, in order to make his dreams come true, Fauci had to fight for a bigger piece of the AIDS research pie, which he succeeded at by getting a sizable amount of the funds that Congress appropriated for AIDS research. Fauci also had to fight to get AIDS out of the claws of the National Cancer Institute, where the virus that was believed to be the cause of AIDS had been discovered, or more accurately, stolen. Fauci argued that it was his institute's right to take on the lion's share of the research because, although AIDS did involve cancer, that is Kaposi's sarcoma, it was, after all, an infectious disease. Fauci got his way, and his success is reflected in the evolving financial numbers that Nussbaum provides. Quote, a growing budget for AIDS research like a rising tide lifted Tony Fauci's profile considerably on the NIH campus. In 1982, NIAID received $297,000 in AIDS funding. In 1986, it received $63 million. In 1987, the sum reached $146 million. By 1990, NIAID's annual AIDS funding was pushing half a billion dollars. Nussbaum wrote, Tony Fauci's ship had come in. Fauci's ship coming in meant the gay community's ship would be sinking fast. It would fall to Anthony Fauci to be the enforcer-in-chief of the HIV-AIDS paradigm. No one can argue that he didn't do a spectacular job of paradigm enforcement for three decades, three dreadful decades. There would be no HIV Ponzi scheme without him. I actually wrote an article in December of 1981 that ultimately got published in June of 1982 in the Annals of Internal Medicine. It was a commentary. And in the commentary, I stated very clearly, although we don't know what this agent, if it is an agent, is, that because it is seen almost exclusively in an epidemiologically restricted population, Anyone who assumes that this disease is going to stay confined to the gay population is making that assumption based on no scientific data. So be careful because it very likely is going to spread well beyond this. And I said it, you know, in, in a commentary. I didn't have any data. I didn't have the virus. It just looked to me saying, here's an infection. It's being almost certainly sexually transmitted. There are a few things in the world that are universal. One is sexuality. The other is you got to eat and you got to drink. And if you're going to procreate, you're going to have sex. And even if you don't want to procreate, you're going to have sex. I was following the cases that were being reported and was preparing my lab uh, and my uh, uh, team that I was putting together. And then when we finally got a small team together, uh, myself and literally just a couple of other people, not very many people were interested in studying this, we began in earnest admitting patients right in the very beginning of the year, right around the, the Christmas, New Year's holiday in 1981-82. So I got very concerned that a sexually transmitted infection that was lethal, because by that time it became very clear to me, because all of my patients were dying, that this was something that we really better be careful of. And it was that kind of concern that made me very confident that I was making the right decision in turning the direction of my research away from inflammatory diseases to study this bizarre new syndrome that was appearing among gay men. Is there anything more tragic than the confidence of a man who is egregiously wrong? 
Fauci was so confident that he understood the nature of the epidemic that he was willing to elbow anyone who disagreed with him out of the way. He was willing to destroy anyone who questioned his scientific authority. Starting in the mid-1980s, an organization called the American Foundation for AIDS Research, AMFAR, played a multifaceted role of raising money for HIV research and enlisting celebrities in a glamorous and ultimately shameful HIV propaganda campaign that made the putatively private organization essentially a de facto arm of the government's HIV-AIDS establishment. If one considers the HIV theory of AIDS a Potemkin biomedical village that gays were forced to live in, then Amphar is one of its leading real estate agents. John Lauritsen, in his book, The AIDS War, writes that Amphar was founded as an alternative to the AIDS establishment to provide funding for research that was not predicated on the AIDS virus hypothesis. It didn't last long. He was not aware that even one penny was ever given to a researcher who publicly expressed doubts as to the etiological role of HIV or the benefits of the nucleoside analogs. In addition to becoming one of the leading private promoters of the government's HIV-AIDS paradigm propaganda, Amphar played a disturbing role in squelching serious scientific criticism of the HIV hypothesis and in helping turn the entire field of AIDS into a world of what I call heterosexist, totalitarian, and abnormal science. Amphar, like ACT UP, played the role of thought police in enforcing the Fauci paradigm. They were like Madoff's protectors who kept the authorities from looking at the books. Lauritsen describes an historically important Amphar moment in the AIDS disaster in his first book, Poison by Prescription. He writes, a scientific forum on the etiology of AIDS sponsored by the American Foundation for AIDS Research was held on the 9th of April, 1988 at the George Washington University in Washington, DC. In the words of the AMFAR fact sheet, the forum was convened to critically examine the evidence that human immunodeficiency virus or other agents give rise to the disease complex known as AIDS. According to Lauritsen, it was supposedly an opportunity for Peter Duesberg, the University of California at Berkeley retrovirologist who first challenged the HIV theory of AIDS to confront members of the AIDS establishment over their hypothesis. Lauritsen reports, however, that despite these praiseworthy intentions, the forum appears to have had a hidden agenda, namely to discredit Duesberg. Lauritsen characterized the forum as a kangaroo court. The forum would make a great scene in a play about the nasty, zany world of AIDS and HIV pseudoscience. It was anything but an honest, open, collegial discussion about the nature of AIDS. Scientific philosopher Thomas Kuhn would roll over in his grave if anyone called it genuinely scientific. By Kuhn's standards, some of the leading voices at the forum may have even demonstrated that they should not even have been considered real scientists. Politicians, yes. Scientists, not so much. Even the HIV theory's ardent acolyte, Michael Spector, the reporter from the Washington Post and future New Yorker writer, who was among the 17 journalists at the forum, saw through the charade, noting that the meeting was billed as a scientific forum on the cause of AIDS, but was really an attempt to put Duisberg's theories to rest. It was more like they wanted to put Duisberg himself permanently to rest. The meeting had the tone and style that was endemic to HIV AIDS research and characteristic of abnormal and totalitarian science. Lauritsen reported that while no blows were struck, some of the HIV protagonists fell below the standards of civility that are expected in scholarly debate. At all times, Duisburg retained good manners and a sense of humor in the face of invective, insults, and clowning from his opponents. One of the signs that AIDS in general was being conducted in the opposite world of what could be called abnormal totalitarian science was the uncanny willingness of the scientists to abandon the traditional rules of scientific evidence known as Koch's postulates. Instead, AIDS researchers, including the ones at the Amphar Forum, were willing to revise Koch's postulates in a more permissive direction. It would no longer be necessary to find the microbe in all cases of the disease. 
mere correlations between microbial antibodies and the progression of the disease would be sufficient. HIV could be proven epidemiologically to be the cause of AIDS. Given the unrecognized sexual politics of the science that was operating among this crowd, they were basically saying, without realizing it, that causation could be established homodemiologically. That's a word I use to describe epidemiology that is both heterosexist and obsessed with gays. The presumptions of heterosexist and political epidemiology would trump the traditional rules of evidence. And those rules would basically be summed up as heads I win and tails you lose. You basically being gays and eventually blacks. Lorson caught the powerful HIV advocates in the act of doublespeak that is common in abnormal totalitarian science when he wrote, quote, Actually, the HIV advocates talked out of both sides of their mouths with regard to Koch's postulates. On the one hand, they disparaged them as in need of modification, read abandonment. On the other hand, they were doing their best to come up with data that would satisfy at least the first postulate. Duisburg's opponents at the forum included Anthony Fauci, the empire-building director of NIAD, at the AMFAR forum, Fauci and others played a curious, unfair game with Duisburg. They accused Duisburg of citing research that was out of date, even though it was basically the same research quoted at that time by the AIDS establishment. On the other hand, when Duisburg would ask Fauci and others for actual references to support their statements at the AMFAR forum, he was rudely rebuffed, and according to Lauritsen, they tried to shore up their viewpoint about HIV with unpublished data or, quote, their own private facts. Private facts not on the public record are another sure sign that AIDS was a manifestation of the opposite world of abnormal, totalitarian, and sociopathic science. Unfortunately, their private facts about AIDS were also connected to each other by a private scientific logic. The 800-pound gorilla at the AMFAR forum was the fact that evidence of HIV could not be found in all AIDS patients, which should have been strong, even damning evidence that HIV couldn't possibly be the cause of AIDS, that is, if normal, non-totalitarian science was being practiced. As scientist Marcel Beluda pointed out at the meeting, quote, sometimes even a single exception is sufficient to disprove a theory. This is the crux of the matter. The virus cannot be found in all cases of AIDS. One could say that still believing that HIV is the cause of AIDS in the face of evidence that it could not be found in all patients is exhibit A, that delusion and denial were running the show. It was Bernie Madoff-style science at its very best. Fauci's answer to Marcel Beluda belongs in a beginner's textbook on the card tricks of abnormal science. According to Lauritsen, Fauci responded to Beluda by saying that a good lab was able to isolate the virus in 90 to 100% of the cases and that there was no question about it. Like Bernie Madoff, Fauci was a total bullshitter. Lauritsen reported that Fauci did not provide a reference to published data nor did he indicate what the good labs were or how exactly they differed from the not-so-good labs. Fauci was faking it, pontificating like a true Ponzi scheme operator. Duisburg made a number of arguments based on his years as one of the celebrated deans of retroviral research, arguments about why HIV could not possibly be the cause of AIDS. Lauritsen wrote that Fauci's presentation while aspiring to be a point-by-point -point rebuttal to Duisburg, consisted mainly of disconnected assertions delivered in a tone of petulant indignation. Epidemiological studies conducted in San Francisco and unpublished laboratory reports seemed to be the basis of most of his statements. So far as Lorison could tell, he understood none of Duisburg's arguments. One wonders what would have happened if Duisburg had been less collegial and accused Fauci and his gang of operating a scientific Ponzi scheme. In some ways, you could say that Duisburg had brought a knife to a gunfight. 
Did anything surprise me? Well, yes, uh, everything surprised me about it because it was the first time a retrovirus that replicated. I mean, uh, uh, HTLV-1 was discovered by uh, Gallo as a cause of uh, T-cell leukemias in the 70s. So, but it wasn't a virus that was destroying cells. It was inducing a, a tumor. What surprised me about HIV was its recalcitrance to being able to be suppressed. And most surprising was the curious observation that is true today of how the immune system just cannot handle this virus. If you look at any, even the deadliest historic scourges, the bubonic plague, which is a bacteria, but smallpox as a virus, polio as a virus, measles as a virus, all of those, even though they had a considerable degree of morbidity and some mortality, at the end of the day, the body proved the concept that it could ultimately suppress the virus, eradicate the virus, and leave you with lifelong protection against reinfection. That didn't happen with HIV. So if you ask me of what the one thing that surprised me, shocked me, and scared me a bit, was that here was a virus that the immune system just was not particularly challenging to this virus. It suppressed it a little, but the virus always won the battle against the immune system. You would think Fauci was a scientist with an open mind, the way he talked about his big HIV surprises. But there are many surprises that he was not open to, like the surprise that the epidemiology of AIDS was wrong, completely wrong. Surprises like the fact that the very definition of AIDS as a disease that primarily affects T-cells was dead wrong. Surprises like the fact that AIDS could be so variable and multi-systemic that many, many, many more people had milder but still treacherous forms of the disease. Surprises like the fact that AIDS was not, strictly speaking, a sexually transmitted disease, but was spread in multiple ways. Surprises like the fact that there were cases of AIDS without HIV that could not just be arrogantly waved away by pretending that they had nothing to do with the real epidemic. A very big surprise came for Fauci in 1992 that threatened to expose his HIV Ponzi scheme. It happened at the International AIDS Conference that was held in Amsterdam. Nina Ostrom reported on it in my newspaper, New York Native, virtually the only newspaper in the world that was doing investigative reporting on chronic fatigue syndrome and AIDS. In our August 3rd issue in 1992, Nina Ostrom wrote, Nobody really expected that any big news would be coming out of the 8th International AIDS Conference held in Amsterdam, July 20th to 24th, so major shockwaves went around the globe when CNN announced on July 18th that Monday's Newsweek contained a major scoop. More than a dozen cases of people with symptoms of AIDS but no sign of the AIDS virus were to be announced at the Amsterdam conference. It is an understatement to say that the mainstream media went into a tizzy. It must have really upset a number of reporters who feared that the developments would bolster my newspaper's reporting that questioned Fauci's HIV paradigm. Oster reported that the controversy about the HIV negative cases grew even more heated on July 22nd when a research team from the University of California at Irvine and the University of Southern California School of Medicine announced that they had identified a new retroviral particle associated with the non-HIV immunodeficiency. Oster reported that Newsweek's Jeffrey Cowley wrote, is a new AIDS virus emerging in the July 27th issue? He describes the patients seen by Dr. Fred Siegel at New York's Long Island Jewish Medical Center. Most of them had so-called HIV risk factors. Their T4 cell counts had plummeted and they developed opportunistic infections. But Callie noted, quote, the trouble is their blood contains not a trace of HIV. Even the most sensitive tests did not detect the so-called AIDS virus in these AIDS patients. Callie wrote, quote, 
No one knows just what to make of the phenomenon, but health officials fear it could signal the emergence of a new AIDS virus, an agent like HIV, but is different enough to escape detection by any available blood test. Nina Ostrom wrote, quote, if this new mysterious non-HIV disease of immune deficiency is found to be related to the other new mysterious non-HIV disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, it may already affect millions of people worldwide. What happened in Amsterdam was the opening and almost simultaneous closing of a Pandora's box of incredibly important scientific questions and implications. The person most responsible for keeping that box closed then and for the next two decades was the de facto AIDS czar, the tantrum-prone Anthony Fauci. This may have been the last chance for Fauci and the HIV-AIDS establishment to turn back from the precipice of the HHV-6 spectrum catastrophe. In her book, Osler's Web, Hillary Johnson wrote, on August 15th, federal scientists convened a meeting in Atlanta to discuss the emerging health threat of non-HIV positive AIDS. In the three weeks since the publication of a paper on the isolation of a new intracisternal retrovirus in a handful of cases, the number of reported cases had risen from approximately 30 to 50. Nobel Prize winners, members of the National Academy of Sciences, CDC's AIDS administrators, and Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, formed a panel to query scientists Gupta, David Ho of the Aaron Diamond AIDS Center in New York, and Jeffrey Lawrence, a Cornell Medical College cancer and AIDS specialist and associate professor of medicine, each of whom had been studying cases of the syndrome and discovered evidence of retroviral infection in patients. But it didn't matter how many brilliant scientists from different institutions were questioned at the meeting because their mindsets about HIV were all the same. It was like a mini Woodstock of group think. There was no turning back from the HIV AIDS paradigm. The carved in stone paradigm was eight years old at that point and the nation's heterosexist and racist AIDS propaganda and public health policies had been built on its assumptions. The gay and black communities had been herded into it like cattle into a train. It was another moment in what I call abnormal science in which the privileged and paranoid foxes had formed a panel to investigate the hen house. That's how you keep a scientific Ponzi scheme going for decades. The manner in which Fauci and his colleagues basically covered up the shocking anomalies of HIV negative AIDS was relatively simple and Orwellian. They disingenuously gave the HIV negative cases an obfuscational new name, idiopathic CD4T lymphocytopenia, or ICL, and they insisted that they were not really AIDS cases. The HIV AIDS elite insisted that because there was no unifying geographic or chronological risk factor to be found in these mostly white heterosexual Americans, and they shared no official AIDS risk factors, there was no HIV-negative AIDS or AIDS-like epidemic covertly occurring in the general population. Chronic fatigue syndrome was not about to come out of the AIDS closet at the Amsterdam conference in 1992. And for at least another two more decades, the chronic fatigue syndrome patients were locked into their pathetic heterosexist wild goose chase to find a cause while constantly avoiding the obvious links between their medical issues and AIDS. They had Tony Fauci's blessings for that fool's errand. As Hillary Johnson points out in her book, his basic attitude towards CFS was that people shouldn't be ashamed of being told that their problem was psychiatric, which was how the disease was deceptively framed by the government for nearly three decades. Fauci and his colleagues told the public that the HIV-negative cases of AIDS-like illness were rare, but of course it all depended on disease definitions and who was doing the defining and counting. Fauci disingenuously sent out a call that summer asking that all HIV-negative cases be reported immediately to him. In my editorial in New York Native, I heeded his call. I wrote, quote, Last week, Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases asked that all cases of HIV-negative AIDS be reported to him. 
we report 13 million American cases. That's the estimate of the number of cases of chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction, a condition that research, if anyone bothers to read it, suggests is essentially HIV negative AIDS. The editorial had no impact on Anthony Fauci, and it would not be the only time he would ignore the New York native during the age of the HIV Ponzi scheme. In Amsterdam, Fauci went from being the AIDS czar to being the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome cover-up czar. With the Congress, um, we've been very fortunate to have bipartisan support for the AIDS effort. Uh, in every Congress that I have interacted with since the summer of 1981 up until this current day right now. Uh, in the early years, it was interesting because sometimes you would see when you would have a split government with a Republican president and a Democratic Congress or a Democratic Congress and a, a, a Republican president, vice versa, um, that you would often see some uh, tension back and forth. But for the most part, even though sometimes the hearings got a little tense, at the end of the day, the support for HIV research was always there, both on the part of the Congress and on the part of the administration. When historians look back at the AIDS era and the massive HIV fraud that covered up the HHV6 epidemic, which included chronic fatigue syndrome, and many other so-called mysterious illnesses, they will ask, what in God's name was Congress thinking? What were they doing? Where was the oversight? Why did they not ask the hard questions? Why did they give this scientific Bernie Madoff a free ride? Were they afraid of him? Were they afraid that they would look stupid if they dared to bring up the issue of HIV-negative AIDS? Were they afraid to ask him about HHV-6? Were they afraid that Fauci would accuse them of being anti-science? An event reported on in my book, Truth to Power, shows how heavy-handed Anthony Fauci could be. On November 2, 1987, I received a telephone call from Jim Warner, the senior policy analyst in the Office of Policy Development in the White House. He had seen my name in an article in the September issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Warner knew that the New York native had published a number of articles suggesting that HIV might not be the cause of AIDS, and he expressed concern that HIV might not adequately explain the epidemic. I asked Warner about President Reagan's position on the epidemic, and he told me that the president wanted, quote, the best people to do the best thing, but that the president didn't feel that was being accomplished. Warner also told me that the White House could be seen as being divided into two groups on the issue of AIDS. One group, which he said was in the minority, wanted to adopt an Auschwitz model by quarantining all those infected with the virus. The other group, he said, was incompetent. Several times during our conversation, Warner stressed that there were many incompetent scientists working for the government. He said he was not impressed that a majority of scientists believe that HIV is the cause of AIDS because throughout history, majorities have been wrong. He was very concerned about the haphazard collection of data on HIV and noted that between a million and a million and a half Americans are infected. If the epidemic was indeed spreading, Warner wondered why the CDC's estimates didn't reflect it. Warner also asked me whether Dr. Robert Gallo, the man credited by some with the discovery of HIV and by others with having stolen it from the researchers at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, had ever stated that HIV is the cause of AIDS. I told him that Gallo had on numerous occasions. Warner expressed a desire to establish the real cause of AIDS so that the government resources could be spent on treating those infected. Warner wanted to know how he could get in touch with Peter Duisberg, the retrovirologist who believed that Gallo was wrong about HIV's connection to AIDS. I gave him Duisberg's telephone number. 1988 brought with it the hope that an exciting meeting scheduled by James Warner for a debate about whether HIV was a huge scientific mistake would actually take place in the White House. Warner had invited both Peter Duisberg and Robert Gallo to the meeting, but on January 8th, Joe Nicholson reported in the New York Post that the meeting had been canceled. Ironically, a man who was no friend of the gay community, Gary Bauer, President Reagan's top domestic advisor, was a sponsor of the meeting and was concerned that HIV might not be the cause of AIDS. 
Nicholson reported that Bauer told him, quote, I've sort of bristled at the finality with which some have made statements about AIDS and how it is transmitted. When findings run counter to accepted wisdom, there is a tendency to muzzle or ignore rather than have an open debate, unquote. Harvey Bialy, who was a research editor at Biotechnology Magazine and was a supporter of Peter Duesberg's criticism of HIV, had been called by the White House to help organize the meeting. Bialy had suggested that the White House invite Gallo and Fauci to the debate. In his book on Peter Duesberg, Bialy wrote, quote, The day of our 1987 Christmas office party, I spoke with Jim Warner for the last time when he called to tell me that sadly the meeting was off. He had been advised that Anthony Fauci, far from reacting as I anticipated, threw a snit fit when he was invited and demanded to know why the White House was interfering in scientific matters that belonged to NIH and the Office of Scientific and Technology Assessment. I always thought that the short circuiting of the scientific meeting was a watershed moment in the battle over the etiology of AIDS, unquote. In retrospect, had it happened, it might have altered the course of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic. In some ways, you could say that Fauci explained to the whole world how to run a scientific Ponzi scheme in a brief piece he wrote for the American Association for the Advancement of Science Observer on September 1, 1989. Fauci wrote, quote, When I first got involved in AIDS research, I was reluctant to deal with the press. I thought it was not dignified. But there was a lot of distortion by those who were speaking to the press, so I changed my mind, unquote. The distortion was, of course, coming from those who didn't agree with the very dignified Fauci about the etiology of AIDS. Fauci had his own idea of what the media's responsibility is. He notes that his interpretation of what the media is supposed to do doesn't even jive with what competent journalists think. He asserts that the big dilemma for journalists is between what is important and what is newsworthy, and he notes that sometimes they are not the same. He whines about the fact that journalists are more interested in the latest story of a cure than the magnificent science involving the regulatory genes of HIV. Fauci described what he thinks is the hierarchy of media. It ranges from the New York Times and the Washington Post all the way down to publications that care only about sales or have access to grind. Fauci had yet to face the unwashed barbarians of the blogs. One can safely assume that publications with access to grind were the ones who didn't agree with the acts that the petulant Fauci himself was grinding. It is amusing that Fauci pontificated in 1989 that, quote, the media are no place for amateurs, particularly when talking about a public health problem of the magnitude of AIDS, unquote. Well, especially when one considers the magnitude of the HHV6 and chronic fatigue syndrome public health problem, that this very self-reverential scientist that Bruce Nussbaum described as lackluster, himself created for the whole human race. While in his piece, Fauci would make one think that the real problem in AIDS journalism was the clownish journalist who couldn't spell retrovirus or one who didn't listen carefully after asking questions, his real quarry in this peevish little piece is something far more serious. Fauci's real problem was journalists who not only could spell retrovirus, but could also actually hear what he was saying all too well. The kind of journalists who also knew things about retroviruses and listened to what he was saying so closely and critically that they could make life very unpleasant for Fauci and his powerful AIDS cronies by asking inconvenient questions. Fauci's Pinocchio nose should have grown several feet when he wrote, quote, We know that reporters must consult more than a single source and make room for dissenting opinions, unquote. What was yet to come in his Observer piece made that one of the biggest fibs in the history of American science. Under the pretense of giving us a little lesson in the relationship between science and the media, and warning that people too often believe what they read in the papers, Fauci reveals his real agenda. Quote, One striking example is Peter Duesberg's theory that HIV is not the cause of AIDS. I laughed at that for a while, but it led to a whole lot of public concern that HIV was a hoax. The theory had a great deal of credibility just on the basis of news coverage, unquote. 
This was Fauci being intellectually dishonest on a couple of counts. Duisburg never said it was a hoax. He said it was a mistake. A hoax is a whole other ball of wax, and it is an example of using language politically to deliberately misrepresent the opposition. Fauci knew all the Bernie Madoff tricks. Duisburg wasn't saying something similar to those who say that the landing on the moon was just staged with props and a camera. He was a Nobel Prize caliber expert on retroviruses, pointing out the deficiencies of the HIV theory in AIDS using basic logic and analyzing the available evidence. And blaming the media for the credibility given to Duisburg's ideas ignored all the scientists, eventually including two Nobel Prize winners, who publicly support Duisburg's skepticism. Fauci was positively Trumpian in that he was essentially accusing those who spotted his fake science as being purveyors of fake news. Fauci then introduces us to the smarter member of his family, his sister. Quote, My barometer of what the general public is thinking is my sister Denise. My sister Denise is an intelligent woman who reads avidly, listens to the radio, and watches television, but she is not a scientist. When she calls me and questions my integrity as a scientist, there really is a problem. Denise has called me at least 10 times about Peter Duesberg. She says, Anthony, she's the only one who calls me Anthony, are you sure he's wrong? That's the power of putting someone on television or in the press, although there is virtually nothing in his argument that makes any scientific sense. Unquote. All I can say about that is wherever you are, Denise Fauci, you have great intuition and we love you. That Observer piece captures how thin-skinned Fauci was. No one was questioning little Anthony's integrity as a scientist. His astute sister was simply asking him if it was possible that he was wrong, and the answer that would have shown some scientific integrity would have been, yes, my dear Denise, it is always possible that I'm wrong, although I think the evidence suggests I'm right. The fact that Fauci took this so personally speaks volumes about the petulant chip-on-the-shoulder attitude problems of those in charge of AIDS. Fauci put it all on the line. Questioning his so-called science was a threat to his very being. It shouldn't surprise anyone that he was willing to viciously fight for so long during AIDS to keep everyone from seeing what a Ponzi scheme he was running. The funny thing is that in a number of ways, this scientific masterpiece does suggest he had serious problems in the integrity department. Between the lines of the piece, Freudian historians may one day even find the glimmer of a guilty conscience. Fauci, like most of the crowd that gave us the HIV Ponzi scheme, knew only too well what normal, non-totalitarian science is supposed to look like when he wrote, quote, People are especially confused when they see divergent viewpoints about the same thing, they do not understand that the beauty of science is that it is self-corroborating and self-correcting. It was actually Fauci who didn't understand that the whole process of self-corroboration and self-correction was being short-circuited by the hijinks of the touchy and crooked HIV-AIDS establishment that was growing more dominant by the day. The very tone of Fauci's piece, its extraordinary imperiousness and presumptuousness about the stupidity of the public, points to the fundamental problem for a society in which arrogant and dishonest elite scientists have more and more power. Fauci would not only be the judge and jury of what was true in science, but he also wanted to decide who deserved to write about it and what they should write. He clearly left no room for the possibility that the really good journalists would be the kind that questioned what he had to say. Fauci also made it pretty clear in the piece that try as they might, AIDS critics and dissidents would get absolutely nowhere because he was permanently stacking the deck against them. He wrote, quote, The lack of clear-cut black or white answers plagues the biomedical sciences compared with the physical sciences. Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischmann said they had achieved nuclear fusion at room temperature. Other scientists tried, but they could not reproduce it. Bingo, it's over. But because we cannot ethically do clinical trials to establish that he is wrong, I am probably going to be answering Peter Duesberg for the rest of my life. Unquote. Someone near Fauci should have tried to convince him that it wasn't all about him. One also loves the presumption that he was going to control the official etiology of AIDS for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, he almost has. 
Beyond the breathtaking megalomania of that statement is the stupidity that the only way to show HIV wasn't the cause of AIDS was to do clinical trials with patients. All it would have taken would have been a few patients with AIDS who had no evidence of HIV. The only people that would be hurt by the implications of that finding would be the dishonest and incompetent scientists like Fauci, whose undeserved reputations and incomes had depended upon the HIV theory. Those HIV-negative patients would be forthcoming in spades. You know, the millions of people with chronic fatigue syndrome, otherwise known as HIV-negative AIDS? I hope you found today's show on Anthony Fauci's Ponzi scheme interesting and informative, and that you will support this show by purchasing one of my books on the relationship between chronic fatigue syndrome and AIDS at charlesortleb.com. That's Charles O-R-T-L-E-B.com. I thought it would be appropriate to end this show with a song I wrote with Chris Davidson. It's about the danger of making the wrong person the leader in a crisis. It's called That Guy, and it's available on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Mayday, mayday, we're in distress We hit an iceberg and the hull's a mess The ship is sinking and the captain's drinking All the scotch and rye But please, please, please don't give the helm to that guy The rats are climbing to the upper decks The frightened crew now look like wrecks We don't know what will happen next But please, please, please don't give the helm to that guy Please, please, please don't give the helm to that guy.